You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so we're closing out this whole conversation called Withness is Our Witness. And we talked about withness as presence and proximity. And one of the things that we've done is we would open up with Matthew chapter 25. And I shared with you as a church that I haven't taught Matthew chapter 25 in this church for a decade. And so I thought it was wise and timely for us to talk about Matthew 25. Now, Matthew 25, the great scene is that Jesus makes it out to be a judgment text. Everybody say judgment text. So it has weight on the front end. And it says that the king will come and separate sheep from goats right to left. And then Jesus goes on and he says something like this. I was hungry and you what? I was thirsty and you what? Come on. I was naked and you what? I was in prison and you what? I was sick and you what? I was displaced without a home. I was a stranger, a foreigner and you what? And you took me and you welcomed me. And then Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, like for the ones who are the most of this category, of this description, the most houseless or displaced, the most imprisoned, whatever that could be, the sickest, the, 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 the negatest, the, the hungriest, the, the thirstiest, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done what? To me. Everybody say, to me. to me. And then obviously, the sheep who heard this, who had done all this, asked an obvious question. They said, when do we see you? Yeah, when do we see you like this? And that's what Jesus said, whatever you've done to them, you've done to me. And a lot of times what we do is we start arguing in our heads, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, what, what, what are the least of these? Like, like, what are these social descriptions that Jesus is using? What is he trying to do? And we think that what it means is that, well, we've got to go out and we've got to go into the margins and find these folks who are in this place. And, and that's not untrue. And then we have ourselves asking questions, well, who are the most vulnerable? Because we live in a society of hierarchies. Everybody say hierarchy. We live in a society of hierarchies where we argue over who's the most vulnerable than you. We ask who has more power than who. And the fact of every society is power is always centralized with a majority people. Always. In every nation under God, society has power that is centralized for the primary good of a majority people who hold the power. In every, in every nation under heaven. Therefore, there are always people who are outside of those boundaries of power. They don't have access to it at all, or they have very little, or it's doled out in almost like, a, like, a, like an allowance. And so then what we do is we start arguing and fussing over who those people are. And we're missing the primary point, I think, the primary point of the text. The primary point of the text is not who has the least. It's not asking, are you going out to the least? What it is first and foremost asking is, are you seeing Christ in them? The question the text is asking is, do you see Jesus in your neighbor? And especially the neighbors that you would least like to see Jesus in. That's the question. Now, the early church believed, so much so that it was willing to die martyrs' deaths, that Christ was found in the poor. That if Christ couldn't be found anywhere else in the world, 
If Christ couldn't be found in a worship service, if Christ couldn't be found in a prayer or a praise or a song or a scripture, that Christ could always be found in the poor. And we looked at that. We looked at how the early church staked its literal life and well-being on doing for those that society would rather not do for at all. You with me? And that was not a question. It wasn't a question for the early church. That wasn't a theological conundrum. They knew that to see the leper, to see the abused, to see those pushed down by ethnic superiority, to see those pushed down by oppressive systems of injustice, to see them was to see Christ in distress. That's how they read the text. That wasn't up for negotiation in the first 325 years of the early church. And then it wasn't much of a discussion for the first 100 after that. It wasn't until the church got married to power that the church started looking at itself saying, mm, those outside of our system of power might not belong. But at first, that wasn't a question or debate. Now what Jesus does in Matthew 25 is very interesting because Jesus then turns around and gives us the bad news. And then he says, he looks over to one group of people, he says, I was hungry and you didn't, what? I was thirsty and you didn't, what? I was naked and you didn't. I was displaced and alone, homeless, houseless, foreigner and immigrant and you didn't take me in. I was sick and you didn't take care of me. I was in prison and you didn't. And then they even said, well, Jesus, when do we see you doing all that? When do we see you in that position? Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, whatever you did not do, for the least of these, you what? You didn't do me. And I think what Jesus is saying is, you were so blinded by something that you didn't see me in the hurting. You didn't see me in the broken. You didn't see me in the powerless. You didn't see me in the pushed down and pressed aside and those society said were disposable. You didn't see me. In them. And the hard part of the text is that Jesus essentially says to them, So I don't even know who you are. And that's the hard part of the text. See, the church used to believe that to be with the marginalized, the poor, the broken, the houseless, the abused, the most vulnerable, the people in society with the least amount of power, to be with them was to be with Christ Himself. But the church also used to believe that it held the power of resurrection within its very body. See, the early church used to really believe that the Christ of the cross could not stay dead and was risen and that there was a bloodstained cross and empty tomb that said every particular person on planet earth is, is, endued with the, is imbued with the value and the dignity of God, is filled with the dignity and the love and the worth that God has made in each one of us as ones being made in His image. And the church who pledged their allegiance to the Christ of the cross and the Christ of the resurrection really believed that collectively they had the power to be changed in a society, not just to change society. And this is the thing. The church didn't try to change society. They believed that society was already changing. Come on now. Where y'all at? They believed that society was already changing because Christ had birthed a new society called what? The church. And that these were the Holy Spirit-filled people of the God of heaven and earth who were walking around the streets 
of the world claiming to be the people of God in the world with the power of God within them. And when they came collectively, they could bring that power together for the good of their neighbor because they followed their master who taught them that the greatest commands of all of the Bible is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor and they took that seriously enough to do it so much so that they died martyrs' deaths for it because they found themselves speaking truth to power. They found themselves on the wrong side of the tracks. They found themselves on the wrong side of the national conversations because they believed that there were some who just weren't allowed in and the church wasn't going to let that happen. And so the church had no question about what the mission of the church is. They believed in the power of withness. That the church cannot be her true self if she is not with those that have been excluded from societies, conversations on power, presence, and privilege, and place. And that just wasn't a question. And so, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about that. And I think it's been important because when we look back at WCC, that is how this church grew. I asked Danny Poe, Kathy's husband, um, he was a shepherd when I got here. I asked him, when did WCC begin to grow? Because he was here from the jump. And for those who were here in the beginning, but let me ask you, those who've been here for the 13 years, I was... My, I'm here, I've been here now 12 full years last Monday. So I'm beginning my 13th year here. And so in the last 12 years, those who've been here that long, when did we see this church begin to grow? Kathy, what did, what did Danny say? When we started what? Yeah, when we started being with those in the margins and our faith became action. It wasn't the preaching. I know, I've been here the whole time. It wasn't the music. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the music. It wasn't the facility. It was the witness of withness. That was the, that was the thing. And for those who've been here that long, you know that's the case. Raise your hand if you're here today because you heard something about the witness of this church. Raise your hand. And that's how this works. It wasn't the preaching, it wasn't the praise, it was the witness of our witness. And what God, I guess, did is God thought that if He could entrust to this church those outside of society's centers of power, then God could expand our church's understanding of power. Does that make sense to you? Are you with me? We, like, how we, like how we define those who are included and wanted and welcomed and worthy would be challenged because those we were told were not are those we stereotyped, are those we made caricatures of, are those we had bad experiences with because they fit a particular social description, that those folks were somehow not welcomed and included, that, that we then had that definition change. All of that began to shift. And I guess God just felt that the more God could bring us out and redefine who we were as a church, then what God did was God knew that he could trust us with more. 
And so then God sent other communities of people who were not welcomed and wanted in churches. And I've had Sister Agnes' permission to say this, but those like Luanga, who were literally asked to leave two churches, they were kicked out of two churches. Everybody say kicked out. They were kicked out of two churches. And then, so God knew that they could be welcomed here and be a part of our church. So then God trusted us with them. And on and on and on, God has trusted to this church people who oftentimes couldn't feel like they could find their voice, even though they had one and it wasn't heard or whatever the case may be. And that's how this church has grown. Amen. And that's never changed. But with all of that has always come a price. With all of that has always come a cost. Because the truth of, of Christianity in this country is that Christianity is more about affiliation and less about participation. And Jesus never called his disciples to affiliation. I'm a Christian. Jesus called his disciples to participation, which said, I will show you that I'm a Christian. And society knows that society's not an idiot. Society's not, not going to be duped. They see our Facebook posts. They see our so-called voting values. They see our so-called commitments of morality. And then they see our lives. And the witness that carried through all of that with the early church was always the witness of withness, of loving an enemy and loving a neighbor and loving them both as we love ourselves, where they recognize what we've talked about in this series, that all is grace, right? All is grace. We just sang your grace is enough because it is. That we serve an everlasting God because we do. And that all is grace and that God has called us to move from a posture of ownership to stewardship. But with all of that is always a cost. And what I loved about the elders when I came, the shepherds when I came to serve with this church and the staff, which at the time was just Garrett and Dave, Dave's retired, is that they were willing to pay whatever the price in order to be faithful to the neighbors in our city who found, it seemed, everywhere they walked, unfaithfulness. They were willing to do things when we didn't have a budget. You know why? Because God's always got a budget. And it wasn't a question of if, it was just a question of how. They were willing to name the hard things that were happening in our society, including our city and our nation, because they knew those hard things were crashing into the lives of somebody who called themselves a member of this family. and We had to speak to it. Even if it didn't affect you, it affected somebody. And we know we can't be somebody to everybody, but we can be something to somebody. And we needed to do that. And things began to shift. But there was a price and a cost. And they were willing to pay it. And every person who stayed put in this church for that long a time knows what that has been. And you are willing to do it too. And so, in a society and in a nation, and in a moment in time where we literally have, hear me out, where we literally have former political leaders teaching churches, literally standing up on Sunday mornings and saying that preachers and pastors should preach the Constitution as much as they do the Bible. Can you believe that? We literally live in a moment where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians are coming together under nationalistic commitments 
At a moment right now, we need more than ever to recognize that Jesus did not call disciples to affiliation. Jesus called disciples to participation. And that is participation in the way of Jesus. Because in the midst of all the things that change, you know what doesn't change? Begins with a J, ends with an S, has an E-S-U in between. Jesus. You know what else doesn't change? Matthew 25 doesn't change. Whatever we still do for the least of these, we're going to still have done for Jesus. That's not going to change. And the hard part of that text that doesn't always make us feel good is whatever we don't do for the least of these, we still will, have not, still will not have done. Did I get Allison? Come on. Come on. You got it. I'm learning. We still, we still would not have done to Jesus. And so Jesus comes. I know. So then Jesus teaches in Luke 14, my favorite text. And in Luke 14, that's the text where it talks about the great banquet. It's the great banquet and celebration where Jesus says, when you throw a banquet, make sure you invite those who you at least have connections. You remember that? Jesus says, and in the text it says, when you throw a banquet, don't invite your friends, don't invite your buddies, don't invite your network of people, don't invite your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, and the people you want to be seen with in public. Jesus literally says in Luke 14, the first 25 verses, 24 verses, when you invite people in and you want to throw a party, then make sure that you invite the lame, the poor, the maimed, and the blind. That's the language he uses. It's his language in the text. In other words, the people who can't pay you back, he says that literally, because you will be repaid in what? Everybody remember? The resurrection. Everybody say the resurrection. I want you to say, I have my inheritance. Say it. I have my inheritance. Because I have the Holy Spirit. Because I have the Holy Spirit. Because of Jesus. So when you have your inheritance, then you can freely spend. You can freely spend your time. You can freely spend your emotions. You can freely spend because you actually have your inheritance. The only question is, do you believe it? And you know how you'll know if you believe it? By whether or not you're willing to do it. And if you're struggling to do it, it means you don't fully believe it. And the only way to truly learn to believe it is not to try and muscle yourself into it in your brain, but the only true way to believe it is to actually step out and what? And do it. And then God will grow you just like he's grown this church. God will grow you because as you are a part of this church and God grows this church in that direction, you will have no choice but to grow. And so then Jesus gets into this whole story and then he says the part of the text that I did not teach that I felt like was a good text to close even though it's not the best text in the world. All right, because it's kind of hard. Kind of hard. So Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds were traveling with Jesus, so he turned to them and said to them. Y'all see that? Jesus has a crowd, so now he's like, mm, I got a crowd, I got something to say. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, read it with me, his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Come on, Jesus. That's a problem, right? Like, why couldn't Jesus have just given us a topical sermon about how our lives can be better? How to have a happy marriage and 10 ways to a better prayer life. Come on. Jesus, you got a crowd. Give me something that is practical. 
Fill my cup, Jesus. It's hard, and the road has been long, and I don't like these people I'm having to travel with, but I'm trying to follow you. Give me something that makes me feel good about the faith that I'm trying to confess in you, Jesus. Right? And Jesus is like, hmm. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, read it with me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Now, this text offends me on a couple of levels because I've tried to fix a toilet that I am still capable of fixing at the house. But I have Danny Poe. And then he says, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still afar off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not, everybody say it with me, renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Come on, Jesus. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. Jesus is getting a little salty himself. They throw it out. Read this with me. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Now, there does come a point in time in this story where you have to discern what this means for you with your ears. You with me? Let everyone or anyone who has what? Ears to hear listen. It's one thing to hear this. It's another thing to listen. So let's put it in context and we'll wrap it up. Jesus has a crowd of people following him. But I guess he recognizes they aren't actually following him they're more like affiliates rather than participants they're more like fans rather than actual followers so Jesus takes an opportunity because I think Jesus recognizes in Luke chapter 14 that Luke chapter 15 through the rest of that book is going to unfold and it's going to get really hard for these folks because there's going to be a price to pay a cost associated because Jesus knows we want surplus, not sacrifice. And Jesus knows that the way of the cross is a way to the cross. And that way to the cross will be a way of joy and beauty and brokenness and suffering on any given 24-hour day. Amen. And that those people following Jesus to the way of the cross is going to have to decide when those times happen, what they are, who they will follow. Prayers will not be answered the way we pray. Blessings will not come in the way we desire. Yet prayers will be prayed in the way that we never even imagined, and even better, and yet blessings will come that we never even could imagine for ourselves. And all of that will happen in any given week. And Jesus knows that this world given to the reign of sin and death, where all the broken things take place, and where societies push people to the sides and dispose of them, that there's going to be a time where we may even be the pushed aside or we may be in the majority power pushing people aside and we have to decide who we're going to follow. So Jesus makes a statement and says, go back to the beginning of the text, please. 
that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus is doing, I want to give you context. Everybody say context. There's a context here. In the ancient Near Eastern tradition and in Hebrew rhetoric and rabbi language and the way they spoke about things, they often spoke in terms of hyperbole to prove a point. Jesus isn't literally saying, you've got to hate your mama and your daddy. Jesus is simply saying, if there's a choice between your mom and daddy and me, what? You've got to choose me. If there's a choice between your wife and children or your husband and children, if there's a choice between them and me, you've got to what? Choose me. This is a question of allegiances. This is not a question of like and hate and love. This is actually a statement of allegiance. That's why in the very end it says, renounce these things. We live in society where we pledge allegiance to way too many things all too easy. And we don't have any allegiances to give. And at the end of the day, we aren't even really true with the things we say we pledge allegiance to. And Jesus is challenging that. And he's saying, you can't split your loyalties you are loyal to me or you're not and so then Jesus gets practical in an illustration next slide and he says well I mean here's what I'm trying to say for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't sit down and calculate the cost and the materials and see if you really have everything to to complete it before you start building in other words Jesus is trying to say before you decide that you are a Christian before you decide you want to affiliate with me, you have to have already decided that you want to participate with me. That's right. You have to count the cost. Because there will be a price. This is the hard teachings of Jesus. Because to go into the margins and to love the least of the least is going to cost you some friends. It's going to cost you some family. I know, personally. And you know I know. And you know some of you. To do for those that society says should be able to do for themselves and pull themselves up by some bootstraps in the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, don't even have a pair of boots. And somebody's got to give them the boots. Or better yet, just point them to where they can get their own boots because they're more than capable. Somebody's got to believe that. And that's going to cost you something. And you've got to be willing to pay the price. That's all that Jesus is saying. He is, otherwise, after you lay the foundation and cannot finish it, and you, and you can't, then everybody knows what you're about. And this right now, in this moment in time, in our nation, and in our country, and in this particular, I mean, this exact Sunday, there is a time where we have to wake up, and we have a chance as a church. And y'all, we have a chance because it is our witness. We have a chance to manifest to society, to a watching city and a watching world, that when we say we follow Jesus, we actually do. That we are as imperfect and as frail and fail as many as anybody else, but we are seeking to be faithful. Amen. And that we can be the people that we're supposed to be because that's who Jesus empowered us to be because we've already been paid we have resurrection, which means we have our inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the assurance of a God who loves us more than our mistakes. We have the assurance of a God who doesn't call us to perfection, but only calls us to faithfulness. And we have all the resources we need because it's in everybody's pockets. And we have all the resources we need because it's everybody collectively bringing their time together. We have all the resources we need because it's collectively present in everybody's giftedness and everybody's experiences. 
from the experiences in your body and in your gender and in your lived experiences that we can grow and be a more beautiful people because we have embraced and included all people who are willing to stay at the table. And when people come to the table and they want to cause harm to the table, we name it what it is so we can, we can name it, they can tame it, and if they won't tame it, they'll tame themselves out of the community. Are you with me? Because that separates the affiliates from the participants. That's why Jesus has some hard things to say. I'll never forget when we were in Athens, Georgia. And I've told this story before, but it might have been a while. And our church had this spaghetti dinner that we would do. Alice and I were campus ministers out there at Nineveh, I mean at UGA. Um, and we were, we were there serving. And this spaghetti dinner would always have this leftover spaghetti. We'd throw it away. And so I thought, well, why don't we go buy some clamshells? And we, we pack up the spaghetti, and we find some neighbors who could eat some spaghetti. And so we packed up clamshells, wrote, by the grace of God, in the name of Jesus. And we just delivered spaghetti. And my wife and I, and she was, I think at the time, even maybe eight months pregnant with Ian. I mean, she, you know, we had all these students that would go with us. We had this intern that would go with us. And we would just go under bridges and into woods. And we would just drop plates of spaghetti with no, no, no tracks in it. Oh, my goodness, Lord. No tracks, right? Just spaghetti, right? No bait and switch, just spaghetti. Now, we wrote by the grace of God in the name of Jesus because, you know, they're going to know where we want to come from. We let it, but grace of God, right? But no tracks, no, no bait and switch, just spaghetti. And then we did this every Wednesday, Wednesday night, every Wednesday night with college students, week in, week out, week in, week out, rain or no rain, Thanksgiving week or no Thanksgiving week, Christmas week or no Christmas week. We did it over and over again. And it was a groundswell within the campus ministry to do this. And we continued on until one time during one of the holidays when it was just me and the intern and this one woman named Patty. She looked at us and said, Fred, I got to ask you a question. Why in the bleep do y'all keep coming out here bringing us spaghetti, even in the rain, and have done it for about a year? She said, most Christians get a bleep up their bleep, and they get excited about this and want to come serve us food and only do that for three months. But you guys keep doing it, and I just want to know why. What do you want from us? Now, she was a matriarch in the houseless community. And so my answer was real simple. By then, we're eating with them. So I just figured you probably could eat some spaghetti. And if Jesus was walking by and he saw the grass, he'd turn the blades of grass to spaghetti and says, he ain't doing that right now. We have some. And not too long after that, Patty came to Jesus. We baptized Patty into Christ, then Amos, then Karen, then Charles. And, I mean, so many came to Jesus from the streets that the church began to have pews filled with neighbors living through houselessness. And y'all, I would literally see, I would literally see church folk come in and they would sit right here. And then houseless neighbors would come and sit in the same pew. And then I would literally see church folks have to go to the bathroom and then come back in and sit right here instead. And by the end of the service, you could see those pews separated from the rest of the church. And it was a sight to behold. And that created hard conversation after hard conversation. I'll never forget, I had this one man, I was in there with my preacher that I worked with, and we were sitting down in the office, really actually reflecting on what we were seeing. And I had this one man come into the office. He was mad in the way to my grandma. He was mad in a wet hen. 
he came in and he said, my granddaddy built this church, my daddy helped build this church, and I've been building this church, and I've been giving my tithes and offerings to this church, and here we go, letting in just anybody, and as of today, I wanted to tell you, I'm no longer giving my offerings to this church. And then my coworker said, you still going to come to it? He said, well, it's my church. I just want you to know I'm not giving to it anymore. And my coworker said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said, well, brother, if you're not going to give your tithes and offerings because of who we welcome, then what you just told me is you were never given your tithes and offerings in the first place. You're only given a bribe. That'll preach, right? I was like, oh! Oh! I wasn't, but I was feeling it though. I'm like, all right, like, all right, I really was. I was like, oh, I thought, take that. But it was sad. Because there's a price. But here's the good news. The risks that following Jesus requires always comes with reward. You with me? I'm going to say it again. The risks that following Jesus requires always comes with reward. There will be blessing and beauty even in that season where we move through. And no matter how hard it is, there will be surplus in the sacrifice. Because one of the things we will learn is that the surplus comes only because of the sacrifice we become blessed because we truly set out to be a blessing regardless of the convenience and so over the next several weeks I want to talk about that and that's a series we're going to tack into together is this idea of risk and reward and this idea that we have the holy wind or holy spirit of God within us breathing in our lives and we're going to talk about it in our relationships all the way down to our dating and to our marriage and to our and to our place of life where we are all the way down into our workplaces and all the way down into our places of play and how Christ is always calling us to this life of risk but he does so because he's already secured the reward you hear me on that you hear how we language that though we don't earn the reward God's not rewarding us for the risk the reward has already been secured we are just simply opening ourselves up to it because we're taking him seriously enough to trust them through it. Does that make sense to you? And that's where we're going to head over the next weeks. But I felt like the way to really summarize this whole conversation was to remind us that witness must remain our witness. And we must be willing to do this at all costs, beloved. Because that's what it means for us to be the church. And if Williamsburg Christian Church is willing to stay the course, we can be a witness without even trying. Just be a witness. Without any of the things that many churches try to do, not we can just be a witness because we're committed to witness because we are willing to count the costs and when it's hard, pay it anyway because God's economy, time, money, health is never in trouble. And we can do so because we have the Holy Spirit of God. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.